Welcome to the ninth Ask the Experts. My name is Tom Pihoda. I'm the Vice President for Research here at Chapman. Today, we're gonna to be highlighting a really exciting study by two Chapman faculty members and, a, and an excellent panel and a moderator that I'll be introducing in a topic. First, I wanna acknowledge that this um, webinar that we're putting on today is, is uh, put on with the generous support of the Orange County Credit Union. We want to thank them for their support and thank the generous sponsors of the studies that, the study that you're going to hear about today and the authors of that study will be able to acknowledge the support of that i'm also really thrilled that i'm able to co-host this webinar with dean lisa sparks who's going to be moderating that today dean sparks is is a is also the Foster and Mary McGow Endowed Professor in Behavioral Sciences at Chapman. She's also a trustee for Area 5 of the Orange County Board of Education. So she makes incredible contributions in our community. As I said, she'll be creating the discussion today and I'll be handing it over to her in a second. But first I wanna talk about a few logistical things. Um, we certainly wanna have a broad discussion with you all today. So make sure that you use the question and answer portion of the webinar here today and start posting questions as our speakers uh, provide the presentation on, on the feudalism study. And we'll be getting to as many of those questions as we can throughout the, throughout the presentation. Um, and with that, I will hand it over to Dean uh, Lisa Sparks to introduce our, our uh, presenters for today and the panelists later on. So with that, Dean Sparks. Thank you, Tom, and thank you for organizing such an amazing, wonderful panel and bringing in all these wonderful experts. We have such an important topic to discuss today. First, I'd like to introduce uh, Joel Kotkin and Marshall Toplansky. Uh, Joel Kotkin is the Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures and the R. Hobbs Professorship in Urban Studies, which he holds here at Chapman University. Uh, also teaches as faculty in the School of Communication here at Chapman University. Joel is an internationally recognized authority on global, economic, political and social trends, described by the New York Times as, quote, America's uber geographer. Um, Marshall Toplansky has an MBA as well, uh, clinical assistant professor of management science at Chapman University's Ardrus School of Business and Economics, and research fellow at the C. Larry Hogue Center for Real Estate, Chapman University, a serial entrepreneur who has founded various companies with expertise in big data analytics. So collaborator with Joel Kotkin on the critical issues of Orange County and California. They've been partners in crime for many, <laughs> many months and years now. And I look forward to uh, hearing what they have to say uh, and introducing the panelists a little bit later on. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you, Lisa. Uh, appreciate the introduction and uh, welcome everyone. Uh, just in honor of uh, today being uh, the 14 juillet, 14th of July and the start of the French Revolution. I thought we'd uh, have as a background today, the famous Delacroix painting of the start of the, of the um, storming of the Bastille. Um, let me share my screen and um, talk a little bit about uh, what we're going to be having as part of our scope today. Uh, as many of you know, this is not our first rodeo. We have been engaged in this research topic for three years now. And the research that we're gonna be sharing with you today talks about what our findings are for the state of California as a whole, 
some of our previous research was more Orange County focused, but now we've broadened that scope to include uh, California and how it stacks up against other states in the United States. Uh, and rather than just focusing on the problems that we've identified, we've come up with a set of tangible policy recommendations about how to address the problems of the squeeze of the middle class. Let's start first, however, with reviewing some of the findings that the research had to identify and frame the issues. Joel, do you want to talk sure. about our, our um, summary here? There we go. Sure. Yeah, I mean, basically what we're seeing in California is although we are a state which is creating enormous wealth and some of the richest people who have ever lived live in California today, and a lot of them are uh, rather, rather young even, um, but what has been neglected, although the overall California economy until COVID looked very good on paper, in reality, most of the jobs that are being created are low-wage jobs. And in the COVID uh, situation, many of those jobs, particularly here in Southern California, which are tied to things like hospitality and tourism, a lot of those have gone away. So we have underperformed in middle-class jobs, and we have created a lot of low-end jobs. We're also losing a lot of our blue-collar sectors, construction, manufacturing, logistics, all of which um, have historically been places that spark at least some upward mobility. Um, those jobs are under incredible regulatory pressure um, and have been moving away, even at times when the U.S. is actually gaining those kinds of jobs. Housing costs will get back to this, but basically through regulatory costs, we have made home ownership very, very difficult for young people, immigrants, and minorities. Um, the rates in other states are considerably better than they are in California. So the California dream, as we talk about, um, is becoming elusive for more and more Californians. And lastly, education system, um, and God knows what's going to happen with uh, if uh, uh, LAUSD is going to go all online. Um, makes me a little bit nervous about that it could actually get worse. But the fact is our education system, even when functioning, uh, was not functioning well, and particularly not functioning well for uh, minority and poor kids. And all this leads to feudalism because people stuck at the bottom have very little chance to go up, and people in the middle are being driven to the bottom. So you create what I would call a neo-feudalist society. So let's take a look at some of the specific data that <clears throat> informed our, our policy recommendations. The first was, <coughs> excuse me, it's all about jobs. We looked at all the jobs added in every industry over the past decade and found that 86% of them were below the average. So we divided jobs into four categories, jobs that pay under $40,000, jobs that pay between 40000 and the median income, which is 78000 jobs that pay between the median income and 100000 and jobs that pay more than 100000 So 86% of those jobs added were under the average pay, under the median. 48% pay under $40,000 a year. A lot of those service jobs that were added, almost half the jobs <clears throat> added in the state in the decade pay under $40,000, kind of tough to make a living. So it's, and we had a net loss 
of middle income jobs, the jobs that pay between the average and 100,000. We lost 42, 4,300 jobs. Um, in the decade from 2008 and 2018, five times more below average paying jobs were created than above average paying jobs. We had 1.6 million jobs that pay below the average pay and 263,000 jobs that pay above the average pay. Not a pretty picture. <clears throat> Looked at across the United States, <clears throat> if you look at above average paying jobs, we lost 51% of those jobs and look at the other states here. New York gained 44% of those jobs. Huh. Other places around the country either had much lower losses than we did or actual gains. Places like Tennessee, places like Virginia, North Carolina all had positives. Um, and then if you look at the high paying jobs, you know, California's largest areas are growing high paying jobs more slowly than our competitors in other states or at below the national level. The national level of growth of high paying jobs was 35.6%. You can see Orange County just below the national average, LA below the national average, Silicon Valley above the national average. But look at all of these other cities in other areas. Salt Lake City grew high paying jobs by 702%. So we're not holding up. We're not competing well against other markets that are going after these high paying jobs. So now one of the problems is, you know, we talk about the affordability question in California, but a lot of it is driven by low wages. In other words, what you historically, when you have low wages, you have low rents. We have the combination of high rents and low wages. So if we take a look at what's happening, the um, the, the difference between increase in housing values and income in California, that increase is, went from 2.5% in 1969 to 7.3% in 2018. The U.S. had a increase, but it went from 2 to 3.7. Um, and you can see the L.A. area um, has had a, a particularly high a rise, not because L.A.'s prices are higher, the Bay Area prices are higher, but our salaries are so much lower that you get this very disturbing number uh, where basically the, um, the average median size, me median price house um, basically um, requires nine times the, the median price annual income. Uh, that is not sustainable. And as you can see, San Jose, San Francisco have it uh, slightly less of an extent. Um, the more affordable areas are in, are in the uh, uh, Central Valley and Inland Empire. And how many people can afford median price homes? In LA, um, on Inland Empire, the whole LA region, it's almost 60% fewer in 2018 than in 2000. It's dropped in the Bay Area, but not as much. Um, it's dropped in the San Joaquin Valley. But what's remarkable is in the rest of the country, actually more people can afford homes than they could um, in 2000. So, you know, we're clearly doing something wrong. Um, and one of the things we're doing wrong is we have a very low home ownership rate. One of the key uh, ways that you get rid of feudalism is to disperse the ownership of property. Um, as the great uh, social scientist, a quite left-wing social scientist put it, no bourgeois, no democracy. We're, we're systematically 
destroying our bourgeois class, our middle class. And what is clearly happening is other states are providing more opportunity, which is when you have a class and you ask the students, 10 years ago, nobody thought about leaving California. Now all of them say, well, eventually I'm gonna have to move to Indiana or Arizona or Texas, um, which is very de depressing if you're a, a, a 45 year California resident like I am. And of course, the other thing that's remarkable is leaving. When, when I uh, was in college, nobody left California. You just almost never heard of it. Um, it has really taken off. We are losing a large part of our population and we're particularly losing middle-class and working-class families, people in their late 20s and 30s, exactly the people that we need to reinvent our economy. Population drives everything <clears throat> in terms of economic growth, <clears throat> excuse me, but equally important is having the people here who can meet the demand of employers who want to hire more people. Um, California needs to increase the share of workers who are trained, have, quali have uh, quality educations by 5.4% percentage points in order to meet the 2030 demand. If you look at the bars on the right, the, the green bars represent the demand for workers and um, the, the orange bars represent the supply for workers. So looking at workers that have a bachelor's degree or more, we're going to have a shortfall. People who have an associate degree, we're going to have a shortfall. Some college, we have a slightly higher supply than demand, but not that much. Uh, high school graduates, about the same. So we're moving into a world where we are going to have to produce more and more qualified people in order to be able to meet the demand for employers coming forward. This chart, which uh, may be a challenge for you to see, so I've highlighted California in blue, tells the story about how California's neediest students, poor students, do in terms of rankings in uh, test results. We rank 49th out of 50 in achievement scores on math tests compared to the other states in the country. So we're not producing the kind of educated, quality trained people that are relevant for the next generation. A second aspect of life in California, and we're gonna get into this a little bit further as we, as we go through our, uh, our data, is the underlying driver of a lot of cost in California which is the cost of energy, the cost of environmental compliance, and the cost of um, focusing our guns on trying to be the cleanest place in the country and the unintended consequence of having high energy costs. Our energy costs are going up five times more than in the rest of the country. We have the second highest uh, kilowatt, per, uh, kilowatt hour cost of any state Behind, uh, behind Connecticut. And um, so it's changes, it changes the attractiveness and the cost structure of California. So and, Joel, go ahead, why don't you? Yeah, so I mean, I think part of this, both the education number and the other number on, on, um, on energy, it, 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 it really has a, a, a 
class effect that creates more feudalism because a if you have high energy prices who gets hit by high energy prices companies that that like manufacturing companies that um if i'm if i'm elon musk and i want to open a new tesla plant probably not going to do it in california going to, he's even talking about texas he moved the battery uh facility to uh to uh, Nevada, um, and obviously having poor education. You know, education used to be the way that working class kids moved up. They they had a great education system, um, and we're sort of losing that. And I think um, the pandemic and the uh, post Floyd disorders could make this worse. Uh, the post Floyd disorders is not going to uh, encourage a lot of investment by business into our uh, inner cities. It's going to um, if we continue to defund the police or seek to defund the police, I think that's going to have an, uh, um, an imp uh, implication for the safety and economic viability of some of our um, cities. Uh, and the pandemic has been um, particularly harsh on minorities, on working people, on people who work in essential jobs, um, who can't, like us, hide behind a computer screen. So in a sense, this is increasing um, our uh, path towards feudalism. Uh, the pandemic has just exposed it and accelerated it. Marshall? Well, so much for the bad news. <laughs> there is actually, from our research, quite a bit of good news, however, on counterbalancing all of this. We have several very large areas of opportunity as a state if we can only get our will together to take advantage of it. First, we retain leadership in a host of very important industries. Space, entertainment, software, medical technology, which happens to be a particular strength in Orange County, international trade. These are all areas of strength that California retains that with a little care and feeding, we can make sure that, it, that we continue to nurture those industries and keep them here, despite the several thousand companies that have left the state in the past decade. Um, the second thing is we've shown that with the right mix of cooperation between employers and school districts, we can tailor schools to provide the kind of skilled labor and skilled workers that they need for these important industries. We saw this in Long Beach when you look at our report. Um, by the way, we put a link to our report at the end of these slides and we'll uh, provide and in your um, in your chat box right now is the link to that to our uh, full report. Um, you can see that places like Long Beach have led the way in public-private partnerships that have been able to take advantage of this uh, of uh, this trend. Um, the other aspect is that there is a lot of land available for low-cost, lower-cost housing and um, the development of, of uh, industry in the interior of the state. We do not have a comprehensive strategy in place to actually migrate industry, migrate jobs to the interior of the state, including our own in Inland Empire, which is probably more advanced in Riverside and San Bernardino County than some of the other interior counties. But nonetheless, there's no statewide strategy to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that the interior of California can provide businesses and people who are looking for jobs. The third area of opportunity is um, environmental regulation. 
we actually can meet climate goals. The Paris, Paris Accords goals are achievable by taking advantage of several factors, telecommuting, um, the, the development of uh, new types of fuels other than uh, solar and wind, which don't provide enough capacity to actually do the job, um, and without high costs and economically punishing regulations. We'll talk about those things in a second. In fact, let's, let's talk about the key policy changes on uh, climate and energy. So, as we all know, uh, the Paris Accords uh, have, been, have been promulgated uh, by the OECD. Um, we recommend that we actually stay within those limits, but don't try to exceed them. The problem with exceeding them is that the, the incremental cost of, of, of going beyond the Paris Accords don't bring us the kind of incremental benefit that, the, that we should get for the money that we would be spending. The OECD created a number of different pathways to be able to achieve the Paris limits. One of them is called uh, Shared Socioeconomic Pathway 5, which it continues to use some small amount of, uh, of lower emission fossil fuels, uh, works, uh, focuses on um, recyclable natural gas, for instance, but also introduces and suggests that we develop research into smaller scale nuclear, uh, as well as solar and wind. These, according to the study group from the Paris Accords people, will help us achieve those 2030 goals without cratering the economy. So we can have prosperity and a great environment at the same time without having to trash our economy. Um, lower emission fossil fuels play a role in all of that. So uh, we want to develop those local fossil fuels for as long as needed, rather than import energy from elsewhere, with an emphasis on lower emission natural gas and recycled gas. Importing energy, and uh, whether it's fossil fuels or whatever, from someplace else actually has a cost from an environmental perspective. It brings with it its own carbon footprint. So to be able to capture local sources is a great help. And of course, we want to promote lower energy usage behaviors, such as telecommuting uh, and greater use of uh, electric autonomous vehicle technology. Uh, and so these are areas that we can promote uh, that also bring with them a certain template for, for economic development. For instance, putting jobs where people work. We'll talk about that in a second. And as I said earlier, um, we can expand other forms of low emission energy, <coughs> excuse me, including hydroelectric and nuclear capacity that's smaller scale, less radioactive, and uses newer technologies. Joel, why don't you focus on this one? Yeah, I think this is really one of the critical things. And you know, we did focus groups all over the, the state. I, in some ways, the most interesting ones were in the Inland Empire and in Bakersfield. And what's happening is state policy is sort of trying to drive development and people and housing into the coastal areas, which are already congested and very expensive. Um, and where middle-class families can't afford to live. Look, young kids in their 20s, maybe they want to live in an apartment in Los Angeles or San Francisco. And I can understand that. But when they get into their 30s and they want to start a family, 
they can't afford to do that. And we have to start thinking about how we can bring jobs to those, to those areas, which really um, are the potential for the middle class in California. The, the coastal areas are just simply too expensive, too highly regulated, um, and I think uh, would be prohibitive for the vast majority of people to live. So instead of having people living in Moreno Valley and driving an hour and a half every day into, um, into Irvine, let's say, or into Los Angeles, wouldn't it be better if they could work either at home or at a uh, dispersed work center near home? This would be a, an environmental win. It'd be a win for families. And one of the things that we were astounded by, given what's particularly what's happening now with COVID, the state of California seems to have no interest in telecommuting. They just have, I mean, literally, California companies make telecommunicate possible, but California is doing nothing to promote this. And other states are very actively trying to promote telecommuting as a way of reducing emissions and, and making life more affordable. Um, so let's talk a little bit about housing affordability. This is one of the main parts of this. Um, basically, the real opportunity in California, unless you're talking about building either subsidized um, units, uh, completely subsidized units, or um, very small apartments, is going to be in the inland. Uh, the, the inland um, empire um, and also the, the central part of the state are places where we can build uh, affordable housing that, um, that people can afford. Despite all the, the endless uh, propaganda coming sometimes from real estate sources, if you look at any survey, the vast majority of people want a single family house or perhaps a townhouse. And those people cannot really be accommodated any place close to the, to the coast. So one of our ideas is that if this coast wants to have incredibly difficult environmental regulations, maybe those regulations should be somewhat revised when you're dealing with the inland empires, uh, inland areas, because the inland areas also not only are affordable, but they right now have a shortage of good jobs. Um, and and um, we want to, if we want to develop a middle class in California, it's going to be predominantly in the inland. Um, so we want to look at other opportunities. Um, uh, some of the California building standards, um, I think, are prohibitive. Um, the costs and fees, uh, sometimes a, to build a house could be $150,000, $200,000 worth of fees. Well, you obviously have to have very expensive housing if that's what your floor is. And then there are great opportunities that we have um, in, you know, even in the worst of crises, there are opportunities. Pan the pandemic has given us two. One is the rapid acceleration of telecommuting, which we've already talked about. But the second one is the uh, accelerated decline of commercial retail in this, uh, in this country and in this state. We are very overbuilt with retail. And one way we could build new housing or even provide new uh, 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 socially distant working spaces is by uh, having tax incentives so that localities will take this redundant space and turn it into housing. That means taxes have to be changed. Right now, too many localities are dependent on sales tax revenue. So if they build housing, they lose. Can we have an incentive so that actually they don't lose if they build housing? 
because housing is what California needs. Um, and and uh, the other thing, obviously, on, on taxes is we have to be able to have localities share their property taxes from new housing in redeveloped uh, retail areas more equitably. In other words, this dependence on sales tax, and we have Steve Pontel um, on the panel later who knows a lot about this. This dependence on sales tax means we build much more retail than we need. We're wasting space. A lot of that retail is empty. Um, just drive by a, a, a lot of our malls, particularly the strip malls, and there's nobody there. We have to have better use of that space. And the important thing about that space, you don't have to go into a single family neighborhood to do it. You already have the infrastructure. You already have water. You already have power. This is the logical thing to do, and but it's going to require some changes in the tax law. So, um, so this, let's talk about policies for addressing regional disparities. Um, one of the big focuses or foci from the state has been on um, mass transit, building mass transit, building high-speed rail between um, LA and San Francisco, a uh, lot of money put into that. The notion for regions is that if we have more mass transit, we can look more like typical East Coast cities. This particular map is a map of transit um, overlaid with job opportunities in Toronto, uh, but it looks very similar to a lot of other cities. So the notion was that if we build a lot more mass transit out, a lot more people can get to jobs. It turns out that is not at all the case. Um, under one under two percent of all jobs in the in the Southern California area are reachable within a half an hour on um, on public transportation. It makes no sense to invest in 19th century technology to be able to provide access to jobs for workers. A smarter move would be to be able to utilize the highway system with ride sharing, with smart roads, to be able to make it easier for people to go back and forth from work. And we need state policies that encourage that. The other thing, which we mentioned earlier, is the need to site job sites, job places, closer to where people live. So you have less commuting time and more convenience for people when they do go into the office. The up next thing we want to talk about, and I know Lucy Dunn is going to have some, some great thoughts on this, is keeping business in the state. We are always, on every, every piece of research that we've read, where people rank the business friendliness of a state, we are always in the bottom two or three if not the worst state in the union to do business in, because the government has policies that make it very difficult for employers to do business here. In addition, we need to encourage industrial and agricultural firms to improve conservation, but work closely with them to ensure they stay in the state rather than take their GHGs elsewhere. There are a lot of industrial companies and a lot of agribusinesses that are seriously moving thinking about moving out of state just because they're harassed with having to deal with all of these um, extra levels of, of regulation. 
We want to reduce the regulatory burdens on, especially on interior communities, so that we can move businesses there, so that they can, they can take advantage of a growing labor pool and lower costs. And finally, provide incentives to encourage locally based firms, notably in tech and business services, to expand to inland areas when they want to put in a satellite office, rather than either go abroad to outsource their tech needs, or to continue to add to their existing campuses, um, which require more and more longer and longer commute times for people. And I just want to add one very important thing here, which is when we when we say, okay, we're going to lower our GHD. First of all, California hasn't done particularly well at that. Uh, and Jennifer Hernandez has done some of that research and we'll uh, get to her later. But the other thing is, what, what basically you do is you just simply move the GHD to another place. So if we don't have a cement industry in California, so what we're doing is we're bringing cement from Arizona, Nevada, or Mexico. So that's obviously using energy to do it. And we've gotten rid of the job. So, and we've absolutely done nothing for the planet and maybe some negatives because California regulation is probably going to be a little stricter than let's say Arizona and because of our climate, we can produce products with less GHG. But basically, I think the state of California is so obsessed with virtue signaling, it isn't even thinking about these things. Well, let's move the focus to improving uh, California education. Joel? Okay. Uh, first of all, and, uh, and this is particularly uh, difficult now, given the, uh, the fact that many of our schools will be closed, but we have to reemphasize traditional learning and discipline. You know, um, Mike Christensen, um, who was the former head of the uh, Orange School District who helped us with this, he said that, you know, we're producing kids who are saying, well, we're not gonna discipline you if you don't follow the rules. You know, there are attempts to not discipline people, to not make people reach standards. What happens when those people go into the real world? They're, they're not gonna be ready for a world where there are rules. Um, so I think this idea of traditional learning about knowing about the past, about knowing about mathematics, having some basic knowledge, I think is very important. And I don't think that's been necessarily always the, the number one priority. It certainly hasn't worked, and, and particularly for minority students and poor students. Uh, well, achievement levels certainly bear that out, as you saw in the previous slide, where number 49 for people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds when it comes to math achievement. So how do we talk about social justice when we do that? Um, in education, um, not one size fits all, particularly today. Uh, we should have a, a diversity. Uh, unfortunately, there are many who are trying to wipe out the charter schools. Uh, the, you know, some of the charter schools are maybe not great, but a lot of them are. And a lot of them are doing new and innovative things, particularly with minority students. So. I think that uh, this idea of trying to turn everything into um, a gigantic LAUSD would be a bit of a disaster. Um, and then private industry, Marshall mentioned uh, uh, Long Beach. Um, when we, uh, Marshall and I went to interview employers in Long Beach, they universally praised the city. Uh, first at the Cal State level where engineering was very strong and helpful, but also at the community college level and even at the high school level. The best thing we could do for many of our kids is to teach them a skill where they can actually make a living 
as opposed to having them maybe struggle through or drop out of college and end up with no skills. The idea of integrating education um, with work is a really good idea. By the way, we and I'll, the good ideas on this are not universally liberal conservative, but you can see them in Germany, in Denmark, in Sweden, um, in Austria. Um, and there are some states like Tennessee and Ohio that have really been pushing in this direction. California has not. Um, and this is this sometimes creates a situation where anyone who wants to do anything in California better find somebody who emigrated from Europe or Asia or Africa because out we don't have a native Californian workforce capable of doing these jobs. I think we're leaving these kids behind. And then obviously, um, as Mike Christensen talked about quite a bit in, in our report, um, we, we are removing even the, the very basis that we can even tell what the results are. Um, we used to have exit exams. We don't have them anymore. Now we're gonna get rid of, a, a, uh, of the SAT and the ACT. I'm not saying those should be the only things, but how do we know how well we're doing if we don't test? Um, if, we, if we don't know what the level is, just stamping a degree from a California high school, if I'm an employer, I'm saying that, as we used to say in New York, that in a subway token, get you a ride on the subway. Um, and so uh, this is absolutely critical. And then lastly, um, and you know, hopefully they won't cancel us in the middle of the show, um, the, the, the attempts to make uh, education, particularly in the, in the humanities, um, oriented towards a particular form of, of political uh, worldview is very dangerous. Uh, nothing is more dangerous than, than, than providing ideology, right or left, to people who are not educated and don't even have the facility um, in terms of facts to know what's happening. You know, you, you, know you, you just run into people who simply just don't have any knowledge, and yet they're making pronouncements about American history. Um, I don't think that's going to work out very well. Well, and so, first of all, thank you for, for um, hearing us, uh, hearing our, our summary. This is obviously just a summary of what is a, a hundred page report. Uh, right here, if, if you, is the, is the um, uh, URL to be able to download the entire report. We've also put it into your, into your chat function. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen. Hold on a moment. There we go. All right, we're back. And shameless plug, this is, <laughs> the, this is the, the publication. So that's what it's going to look like when you download it, in case you were thinking it was going to be something else. Um, so let me turn this uh, back to Lisa, and we can start with the uh, with Q&A. Thank you. Oop, Lisa, you were muted. Got it. Okay. Am I muted? You oh, are. I'm muted. Good. Okay. Thank you, Marshall and Joel, for all that fascinating data. Um, the news is generally not good, but I like that you provided a little bit of hope here and there, and I hope we can unpack that a little bit over the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour or so. Let me introduce uh, our panelists, and then we'll move on to question and answer. First of all, welcome Lucy Dunn. Uh, Lucy is president and CEO of the Orange County Business Council. She has a record of public service as California's Director of Housing and Community Development, and currently as a member of the California Transportation Commission. Lucy also is an attorney, 
founder and or director of numerous organizations, including Homeful Foundation, Bolsa Chica Conservatory, Orange Catholic Foundation, and Pacific Symphony. Welcome, Lucy. Thanks, Lisa. Next, we have Jennifer Hernandez. Welcome, Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer has practiced land use and environmental law for more than 30 years and leads Holland and Knight's West Coast Land Use and Environmental Group and divides her time between the firm's San Francisco and Los Angeles offices. Ms. Hernandez is the only California lawyer ranked by her clients and peers in Chambers USA in the top tier of both land use, zoning, and environmental lawyers. So welcome, Jennifer. We're pleased to have you here as well. Thank you. And finally, we have Steve Pontel. Welcome, Steve. Uh, Steve is the Chief Executive Officer and President of National Core, one of the nation's largest nonprofit developers of affordable, affordable and senior housing. National Core owns, operates, and or manages nearly 9,000 units, serving more than 27,000 residents in California, Florida, and Texas. In addition, Steve has addressed the California Assembly on the challenges facing the affordable housing industry. So welcome, Steve. Thank you very much. We have an amazing set of panelists here. Um, you know, I, I, I just want to kind of open up with uh, the, the, one of the main messages I heard from Marshall and Joel is this idea of the, the neo-feudalist society that we find ourselves in that's creating this digital divide, creating an economic divide, creating an education divide, housing divide, basically every divide you can imagine. And I, I love the no bourgeois, no democracy comment. That sounds like a nice book title, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, what I, my role now is to sort of sort through the various questions that are popping in and, and pose those to the panelists and then you all sort of talking amongst yourselves and uh, one common theme of questions that have been rolling in is related to Prop 13 and to what extent is Prop 13 a contributing factor. So I don't know if we'd start with Steve on that question and then we can go through the panelists uh, in terms of things you had to add to that. Sure, happy to. So, um, you know, when Prop 13 passed, it was designed to deal with a structural flaw at the time and probably not a holistic solution. And so you play it forward many years later and it does create a significant distortion where if you've owned your property and you're not, you know, if you're you know, under pre-Prop 13 property, and you're paying you know, $1,000 a year in property tax and the new young family moves in next door to you and is paying $1,000 a month in property tax, I think everybody would agree there's an inherent unfairness in that, depending on how that property has been passed down and heirs and everything that goes into that. But politically, probably one of the most difficult things to address on the residential side. And so we have a ballot initiative, I believe it's on the ballot for this fall. And on the commercial side of Prop 13, it's probably easier to attack, and yet it's gonna be less impactful as far as dealing with the issues that we're talking about. And so the, the, the entire fiscal structure of California, how we pay for things, how we tax things is a camel. I mean, it's been built through a whole series of individual decisions and probably needs a complete top to bottom redo in order to make sure we're charging the right taxes to pay for the right things. And, um, and Prop 13 is just one of the symptoms of that challenge. That sounds like a daunting task. <laughs> um, I'll toss it to Jennifer with your regulatory background and experience. Uh, what do you have to add to this conversation? 
So we have, uh, uh, through Prop 13 and importantly through other regulations, um, decreed, and I'll put myself in this um, category as the baby boomer generation is the decree issuer, we have decreed that those who come behind us need to be burdened with much more than those who we grew up with and ourselves. So whether it's paying a lot more in taxes or paying a lot more for new homes or paying a lot more for energy or having a lot more cost on the education side, we have in our, and I'm a Democrat from Berkeley, in our political wisdom, uniformly and consistently decided that the next generation has to pay more. And we're also excited about incurring debt on behalf of uh, those generations. Um, Prop 13 had a perfectly legitimate beginning of escalating property taxes, driving people out of their homes. It hit when I was in high school. I knew people who couldn't afford to pay their taxes. I grew up in a middle-class factory town called Pittsburgh, California. And the difference between $1,200 a month and 400 or a year and $400 a year, that was the difference between being in a home or not. So Prop 13 responded and tried to tell government to cut it out, to not make it so expensive to live here. And of course, what instead it has done is taken just that one piecemeal issue of property taxes and frozen it. And now we have many other taxes and fees, which don't even come under the same level of scrutiny that have been promulgated with my generation's enthusiastic endorsement and hit mostly those who are younger than us. Yeah, we seem to see a lot of uh, good intentions paving along the road, but uh, a lack of uh, foresight in terms of what are those unintended consequences downstream or down the road. Let me shift just a little bit to Lucy Dunn. Um, we have questions, additional questions coming in about uh, you know, California jobs in the future and, and businesses, businesses and specifically, so what, so generally, what do you see in terms of this problem in the future for, for uh, jobs? And then specifically, should businesses pay for work at home expenses? Should everyone just be issued internet access? And how do we deal with uh, various ideas around the implementation of a remote workforce or an increasing remote workforce? Well, first I wanna commend Thanks, Lisa. I want to commend um, Joel and Marshall for another terrific report. I mean, it is crisp and their findings are, are, are great. Uh, and a, a lot of it, right? There's no surprises here for those of us on this call. We've, we've been struggling with these issues. It's just, I love that Marshall and uh, Joel will um, now present it in the term of feudalism, which I think is really an interesting concept for us to kind of get our minds around. Um, from the standpoint of, of middle-class jobs, I mean, first of all, a pandemic in and of itself, we were already um, disrupting middle-class jobs pre-pandemic through um, artificial intelligence, uh, through the, you know, just a new economy. And the, the struggle with those jobs where folks are used to making stuff with their hands, construction and manufacturing, even logistics, they're all going to artificial intelligence. In fact, there's one statistic that says 49% um, of jobs uh, pre-pandemic had the potential of being automated. And I'm sure that number is different now. In a pandemic situation, in a crisis situation, all of it accelerates all of it accelerates and the disruptive 
innovation that comes with it will have to accelerate too. Um, and how that now marries with the policymakers in the state, which as Jennifer rightly says, we're dealing in many respects with 1950s thinking from environmentalism to taxation, to land use policy, to just regulatory environment. Um, it's funny that you would say earlier in the presentation that you know California has been noted by uh, Entrepreneur Magazine and CEO magazines across the nation as literally, if not at the bottom, but near the bottom for the last, I don't know, 20 years as being the worst state in the, in the nation to do business because of this regulatory environment. And I've asked big businesses specifically, why are you still here? I mean, the regulations suck, the taxes suck, you, you have issues with getting the right employees. And they ponder in, for a second and they say, because the marketplace is so big here, it's hard to escape a 40 million population country um, and it's hard to get your mind around that if you can succeed in California, you're going to make it big. In the meantime, a lot of us fall by the wayside as a result of everyone, you know, trying to get through. So um, the disruption side, the, the, the pandemic disruption, uh, Lisa's spot on, internet, broadband, we're telehealth, we're telecommuting, we're teleworking, we're teleeducating folks. We're learning how to do these things in a whole new way to be just as productive, maybe even more so at home. Um, and those jobs, again, will come with it, will be different. How in the short term, however, we work with um, a elected officials uh, you've got a governor running for president, so everything he's doing is got a patina of how is this going to play on a national stage. Even the people he appoints to leadership positions are from other um, states and, and Washington, D.C. They're not even Californians who know how to fix California, which kind of cracks me up. Um, so, so there's one, a president looking prospect or a, a governor looking prospectively. And then a legislature, none of whom come from business. Mm. So they, they've never signed the front of a paycheck. And, uh, and they, they, one good idea layered on after another, after another in the short term, we've got to look at those kind of things and be able to figure out how to push back hard. Add to that one last point that I will make, and you cannot disconnect from this conversation the fact that there's a strong push from um, uh, some that these strategies are very important because the depopulation of California is very important. Getting rid of people is a good thing so that California can help meet its uh, uh, goals. And I, and I just find that fascinating because the policies we've instituted in the state, when you have a governor that spends an entire state of the state talking about housing, and yet a year ago, and not one thing changed to increase housing supply, not one. In fact, it's worse than it was before he made the state of the state, right? So that's one, our housing policies to increase housing for folks, housing ownership, the single most important factor to wealth creation, 
for the middle class to get them into a middle class and home ownership is completely discounted uh, and defaulted to, well, we got to take care of homelessness and we got to take care of quote unquote affordable housing that's too expensive and not affordable to build. Marry that one with the fact that our climate change goals are inversely proportional to our housing goals. Without the connective tissue like you have just highlighted in this report, that telework, telecommuting actually can make both succeed. And without those kind of connective tissue things, instead of the institutional bias of endless transit projects um, that were declining, ridership was declining in a, in a great economy. Now we're what, at 89% not riding transit? Some, some ridiculously high numbers, other than essential workers, et cetera. So mid-range, I'm struggling with you. I'm struggling with you, man. I've got to, we've got to all figure out, thank God for Steve Pontel, Jennifer, she keeps us straight, and reports like this that give us new tools. Um, mid-range, long-range, there is a path to getting this stuff done if we continue to highlight some of the challenges and the solutions that you've presented. So thank you for that. And thank Lucy, you. I just want to add one more thing to, um, to what you've been saying. You know, what, what amazed Joel and I as we went around the state and we talked to people is the sense of innovation that's kind of built into the soul yes. of Californians. You know, we, n none of us are insular. We've all been around. We've traveled extensively. We know how other places work. What amazes us is how in the face of all of this dysfunctionality, how incredibly innovative and creative Absolutely. a group we have here in California. So if, if there's going to be an answer, it's going to be in California. We just got to figure out a way to get the government and the innovators to be working together in a positive way rather than in a confrontative way. Well, you've seen that a bit with uh, an Elon Musk and a tunneling system. I don't know how Steve feels he should talk about that more, but connecting transportation in a new way um, when you have a Metrolink system uh, not connected to an airport in the Inland Empire, right? Or uh, figuring out how to do high-speed rail between Inland Empire and Las Vegas, where there actually could be, you know, attractive- a ROI. I know, return on investment, exactly right. So the innovation here is truly real, and I think it becomes accelerated in crisis. And so- Thank you for highlighting some of these cool things in the report. Jennifer, and I, jump in. Oh, yeah, so I just, I just wanted to pick up, um, uh, though, on a very important comment that I think Lucy made, which is that there is a very, very, very strong uh, uh, group, uh, some elected, many not, uh, many in the NGO world, uh, many, many, many in the environmental advocacy world who do not share uh, a core uh, acceptance of upward mobility, of uh, uh, of jobs, of working, uh, of um, uh, of actually accommodating uh, people. Um, and one of the laws that I work with a whole lot, the California Environmental Quality Act, had a new low moment. There's been a lot of low moments in this history of CEQA. But we've just decided that um, the University of California at Berkeley, the flagship university, 
um, can't enroll more kids without going through the CEQA process, uh, which allows anybody to sue over anything, even anonymously. And when you apply environmental law to population like that, what you're really saying is, we ain't accepting you people. And the you people at the other end of that statement are not just younger, they're browner. And there is a core racial element in this history, especially the history of the environmental movement, which the California League of Conservation Voters executive director just acknowledged explicitly for the first time that any California leader of her statue has acknowledged, stature has acknowledged. And without confronting that core level of racism that keeps, for example, Marin County, the whitest and lowest population county in the Bay Area, without accepting that, without challenging whether or not we are in the boat together and want the boat to rise with the tide, or whether we're really quite happy to see people to you know, move to Texas where they belong, right? Who needs them? That's really what we have. And there was a question saying, why are we losing such middle-class jobs? Because middle-class jobs that add value, which are pretty much middle-class jobs for blue-collar worker, require energy to make things. Whether automated or not, you can't create, you can't produce in a, in a, a blue-collar environment without using energy. And we're driving our energy prices intentionally up to unsustainable heights while reducing the availability of clean technology. The Air Resources Board just required all big trucks to be electric. There are no electric big trucks. <laughs> that requirement keeps dirtier trucks on the road to the detriment of the people who live next to those freeways. Go dudes and gals for making those freeway corridors more dangerous in the name of climate for those people's kids, not your own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mentioning all these, what, what, all these comments beg the, the overall question, the overarching question uh, related to the various uh, divides from economic divide, transportation divide, education divide, uh, just go down the list, economic, housing. Um, can anything change under the current leadership, number one? And number two, what's the incentive for the rich to change a system that serves them? And as well, what about the unions? Can they play a role in leveling the playing field for the working poor? So, I'd like to jump in. <laughs> I, yeah, if I can respond to a couple things that were mentioned before, and then I'll try and weave in the questions that you just okay. asked. So, so first of all, you know, the, the competing, it's not even ideologies because it's really more of a theology that people have their belief systems tied to. And so we have to take that perspective when we're engaging in the conversation and about people and the environment and jobs and everything that goes into that because, you know, both Lucy and Jennifer are, direct, are you know, absolutely correct. There are people that define success as reducing the population in California. California would be a really nice place for about 16 million people. Right. Okay. So, you know, who are the, the 14, you know, or, or what are we at 40 million now? So who are the, you know, 24 million people that are going to be leaving the state of California? And so at the end of the day, you have to understand those frames of reference and kind of where people are coming from. And the other thing that gets, so a couple of things give me hope. Number one, I'm, I'm a huge believer in creative destruction, Schumpeter's, you know, um, uh, economic theory. Um, but it, you, you got to have creative destruction of the system as well. So you can't see, 
significant changes in the economy and the way we do things while you're trying to hold on to this, you know, 1950s style system. And so how do we get those kinds of honest conversations into the equation? So a couple of specific things. Um, and I think Jennifer is doing a good job of this. So number one is really be thoughtful about creating new coalitions and new alliances. Uh, and that's something for whatever reason we've been afraid to do. But the, I believe that California as a whole, it's a center right state from a socioeconomic standpoint in its, in its basic core um, politics. And so bringing together, you know, uh, the, you know, faith-based groups, the, the, you know, businesses, uh, the health sector, um, you know, the, the, you know, fundamental core work ethic of the Latino population. I mean, you pull, start pulling together people and then you start talking in ways that are, you know, none of this is complicated. It may be politically difficult, but it's not, this is not, we're not trying to put a ban on the moon here. We're just trying to come up with a rational basis of taxation and the ability to provide shelter for people. And so we know how to do these things. And I think if we really think about building the coalition of the willing that are willing to move forward and start pushing on very specific issues that need to be addressed, you know, in the tax system, what should a house pay for? Should a house pay for a school? Should a house pay for a road? Should a house pay for all of the other infrastructure that goes into it? Or should there be another rational way to pay for those necessary infrastructures and let a house's primary purpose be to provide shelter, not to provide community infrastructure because communities don't have the ability to deal with it? You know, should we have pension reform? Do, can we do the basic math on the consequences of our pension obligations? And then let's be honest about what it's going to take to make transitions you know, so that the system can work. So we are the most creative place on the planet. The answers are not overly complicated. They can be politically difficult, but I do believe there's a political majority that if you can have reason conversation and where the answers aren't, you know, they don't have to be too complicated, we can start winning very specific battles um, in Sacramento and in the court systems. And so that, that's what gives me hope to a large extent. And, and, you know, I'll just use one example. You know, when you have something like AB4, which goes completely against the direction the economy is going, completely against the way work's going. That would be and AB5. 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 Oh, AB5, sorry. AB5. Um, I mean, those kinds of things. We, you we could explain what, what AB5 does, Steve. Uh, I'll let Lucy uh, explain <laughs> it. But it's just, you know, the, those kinds of things are just such an obvious opportunity to say, well, I mean, you know, it's just saying that being a gig worker, being an independent contractor is now a bad thing in the state of California. When the economy is moving towards more flexibility, more distributed, more dispersed, you know, we should be building systems that support that. You know, we have more licensing requirements in the state of California than any other state. You have to be licensed to do just about anything here. The barriers to entry, going back to Jennifer's point, you know, we're trying to make the people coming behind us work harder and harder and, and have to deal with barriers to entry that nobody had to do. I mean, Jennifer's argument on, you know, the fight she has with CARB about the institutional racism of redlining is being furthered by the current regulatory environment that's, that's preventing the production of home ownership opportunities. So if you were discriminated against because of redlining, now you really don't have the opportunity to ever own a home because we're not building any homes that you can have the possibility of owning. So if your family didn't get in the game in the 1950s and 60s, good luck getting in the game now. And so... 
I have tremendous hope because we are creative and I do believe there's a winning coalition that can be put together. I, I love that, Steve. The one thing that I would caution us on, um, and this would be another good uh, study for um, Kotkin and Toplansky, is throughout history, whenever we've had crises like this, government regulations get tougher. Government interferes even more. And for us to do this kind of work requires innovation. Again, that tension of disruption. Can we break a typical historic cycle as a student of history and say that disruption, that coalition of the willing can um, reverse what has uh, been the case in the past to actually produce something really good. Um, yeah, and you know, the, the in periods like this in history, just real quick though, since the pandemic, we've yeah. changed regulations in weeks that were yes. said could never be changed. I mean, having the yes. healthcare, the federal government paying for telehealth is just a small example of what could be done like that. So it's Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. so, so the, the point that you're both making is that in periods like this that are highly disruptive, I mean, leaving even COVID aside, you know, we're in the middle of a very disruptive period from a technological change point of view which affects the rest of the economy, the rest of society. You need to optimize for flexibility. Right. You're not going to be creative in within an existing structure because the structure, you've run, you've run up against the limits. So you have to be as creative as possible. And that's the whole point of gig economy workers in AB5, which was probably the dumbest thing that we've ever done because right. it, it cuts off the ability to be creative, to be able to try things without having to have major commitments to them until we can prove them out and then we can figure out a new way forward. I think that's so, so right on, Marshall. It's sort of like a lot of us are in the five stages of grief right now, all wanting our old lives back. Right, we're in anger and and you know uh, um, denial, you, right? in denial, and and pretty soon it'll be acceptance. But we're all in the middle, wanting our old lives back. And I look at AB five and that tension of independent contractor versus you know a union worker, because that's what it was about was growing a union membership and union dues in sort of many cases, antiquated um, systems, right? Um, and so how do we get our old lives back? And in a normal state, when that court case that decided uh, the issue, Dynamex, the legislature of a normal state would have said, what a crazy court decision, let's undo that and do right legislation. Instead, our state doubled down on it and made it even tougher. I mean, again, it's that crazy stuff about California where the left is politically correct, way too politically correct, and the right is way too politically incorrect. And the middle, those of us in the middle just trying to eke out a living in a high cost state, we're up for grabs. You know, some people could come to the middle and actually get us to help be part of Steve's coalition of the willing to make some real systemic reforms in, in a new economy. Jennifer, you had your hand up there and yeah, somewhere please. along in there. Did you want to add anything? Oh, uh, just, uh, I've been uh, looking at some of the questions. I, I realize what uh, many of us are saying here are quite um, controversial, um, but 
challenging a dogma or challenging a religion uh, is always inherently controversial. When yeah. someone says, hey, we should look again at nukes. <gasps> Yo, oh my God, billions of people, thousands of years of uninhabitability. What do we do with the waste? Of course, but get smart about it. Um, I'm going to just do a shameless plug here. Uh, Michael Schellenberger uh, has finished a book uh, that's now number seven on the Amazon charts, which is pretty weird because it's a nerdy book called Apocalypse Never. And the truth is we have a climate change problem and it's even maybe a climate change crisis, but we fixed other crises. We fixed food production. People aren't hungry because we can't grow enough food. They're hungry because we're broken as a system. And that's a problem, but it's not because we can't fix, uh, make food. So we have solutions. We, the Obama administration reported we moved 98% of smog forming pollution out of the tailpipes of our cars. 98%. You think that was like easy? You think we invented it in 1978 or 1972? No, it took a lot of work. We can do climate in the same way, or we can say there are too many people on earth, especially those people, and we need to just ratchet back globalism. We need to ratchet back consumerism. We need to ratchet back and frankly, put aside notions of upward mobility. They hurt Mother Gaia. I mean, I live in Berkeley, right? So this is how we talk. So we, we I think, need to confront that this is not a one issue at a time divide. This is not someone who disagrees about energy production technology. This is a divide about whether we're still an equal opportunity society. We've never been one, but usually at least we try. Right, right. right now, we're not even trying. Right. And Jennifer, that's a problem. And, and, and to that exact point, a mind-blowing system set of facts that folks don't realize. California, 100 million acres in the state, rounding it off. 50% of our state is perpetual, well-protected open space. Angeles National Forest, Yosemite, Redwoods, Mojave Desert, 50% owned by the state or federal government in perpetual protection. 45% uh, of our state in agricultural production or private open space, 5%, about five, six million acres for commercial, industrial and residential development for 40 million people. We don't just have to keep densifying downtown LA and live in elevator buildings, as one of our friends says. All I need is 1% more land as you know an extension of an existing uh, neighborhoods and we can solve the state's housing crisis and still protect open space and protect our agricultural lands. But and for the, no, and and for those of us on the climate edge, the renewable folks, they claim we're going to need one to three million acres of open space for solar and wind. So how about a little balance there and make some room for people? For people. And then really, is that the most efficient way we can create electricity is chewing through three million acres of open space? Really? Doesn't that really warrant a little bit of examination. Uh, no, we have, we have about 10 minutes left of conversation, and then we're going to have a wrap-up, uh, a last minute from each of our participants. So I'd like to shift the topic, well, actually add to the topic you're talking about energy, and touch on energy for four or five minutes, and then I'd like to wrap up with a touch on education. Uh, now, concerning energy, you kind of, you brought up nuclear energy, and 
to what extent is nuclear energy really safe? Um, and I would also ask, um, related to that, why does the Midwest have lower energy costs than we do uh, when they're, in many cases, disease and, and lung cancer, diabetes, and so forth? Um, so could you guys speak to, to the energy questions? Well, I just finished Schellenberger's book, so I can, I can crib from that if you want. Sure. I mean, the truth is we had two pretty, actually three, uh, Fukushima uh, and Chernobyl and also Three Mile Island, three pretty bad accidents. Um, from those accidents, uh, and this is extremely documented, um, uh, you know, we've had, I think, his conclusion, uh, and I may get the numbers wrong, but less than a thousand deaths. We have a ton, a ton of accidents associated with other energy consumption activities, um, all, all kind of all the time, um, uh, whether it's coal or oil, uh, or even on the renewable side, uh, because re right behind the renewables are what it takes to produce renewables, which is mining and, and production of vast quantities of pretty exotic materials, as well as um, uh, cement. So um, on the safety side, um, I, I do think that the case is there to really question. On the, why is the Midwest so much cheaper on energy? Two reasons. One, California imports more electricity than any state in the country. Just think about that. We don't make what we consume here. We have, by the way, right now, this huge bulge of energy coming out of our renewable system in the afternoon, which we pay Arizona to take. So we charge California for the cost of making more electri uh, expensive electricity, and then we pay other people to take it. And then we have to import the energy that is made uh, really from nat mostly now natural gas sources uh, to meet our actual needs. So we have one, an one thing intentionally ridiculous system. One thing to add, Jennifer, on your, uh, to your, what you're talking about, there is a new generation of nuclear um, energy that's being developed, boron-based, much smaller scale, doesn't require the same level of, uh, of uh, uh, investment, both in land and in money to be, able to, be able to be able to bring up, and yields much lower radioactive output. Arguably, one of, the, one of the problems with nuclear energy has been, how do you get rid of the waste? We haven't really figured out a great way to do that other than bury it in Utah or Nevada someplace. Um, but the new technologies that are coming up have much lower, um, much lower radioactive profiles and uh, have much higher safety profiles from a cooling point of view. So they're offering a good deal of promise. The one uh, other thing, and Jennifer, correct me if I'm wrong, but California's uh, crazy energy rules. First, we're also a fuel island with regard to fossil fuel. Um, we import more oil from the Middle East than any state in the union. Think about that one. We import or, or more oil than any state in the union from the Middle East, and yet we're supposed to be carbon neutral. Great. So uh, solar and wind are our favorite choices of renewable energies. We're not allowed to count hydroelectric, which also produces energy. It's not part of the portfolio, and yet that doesn't really impact the you know our our issues here. So it's our whole it's again it gets to what jennifer was saying there is a um you know there's a, a religious nature of this that you have to select the appropriate religious platforms not just good science or innovation in order to do the right thing in california 
and, and yeah. don't and don't forget how much we cook the books. Right. So some of the countries in Europe are on track for Paris because they count burning wood waste as carbon neutral. And that's kind of silly. But here with a forest that kills people, that has such excess wood, dead and dying trees and shrubs, we can't have any economic recovery from that wood waste because we don't count burning wood waste and the cleanest technology in the world as renewable. It's biofuel, it's counted under Paris, it's counted by Germany and England, it's not counted by us. We've cooked the books. I, I just want to add one very quick thing on this, which is um, we also have to think about the fact that when we're importing this energy from that very progressive enlightened state of Saudi Arabia, um, <laughs> <laughs> that we have a big oil industry. California is awash in oil. As long as we use, if we're using oil, why won't we use uh, oil that employs uh, working class people in Kern County? We're, Good union we're jobs, by the way. Great union jobs, right? Union jobs. Yeah. And this is part of the political question, which I've never quite understood, which is why the unions um, in California are not, you know, are not in alignment, at least so far, with this agenda. Well, actually, they are. They are, they have actually uh, aligned to. There was a uh, an attempt to shut down one of our uh, refineries in California, and the building trades union stepped up big time to say, okay. cut it out. High paying jobs. Oh no, so, not happening. So just two other quick points, Lisa. Number one, understand how. I mean, we should understand and be able to articulate how regressive our energy policy are how the poorest people are significantly disadvantaged because of the energy that we have. And then number two, how we define things is really important. Carbon emissions are not pollution. And so we talk about it as if it's pollution. Right. And I, at the end of the day, understanding what the real dynamics are and how the pieces fit together. And just real quick on oil, we produce 12% of the oil we need and we import the vast majority from Saudi Arabia. The energy, the climate impact of energy production in California is a one, let's say. The climate impact of energy production in Saudi Arabia and bringing it here is a four. So if you care about the climate, you'd want more energy production here, but we can't seem to have that conversation. So we're, we've sort of run out of time in terms of tapping into education, but I wanted to give a nod to, to Joel uh, for the idea of really partnering with businesses and industry uh, and having our schools really uh, be focused on creating skilled workers by uh, those partnerships between public and, and, and private corporations out there. Um, uh, and then we, we had questions about uh, uh, the burden of the public pension system, um, which ties to, uh, you know, there are just so many more topics that we could tap into. We just don't really have time today, but I'll just throw those thoughts out there. Uh, we have about a minute left for each participant to sort of summarize. Um, so I would start with you, Lucy, and we'll, we'll go to Jennifer, then Steve, and then Marshall and Joel can wrap up. Thank you. Well, my, my one minute, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, secede uh, to Jennifer and Steve. Just very simply, thank you, um, Joel. Thank you, Marshall, for another great study. There's enough more studies just coming out of this little webinar today for you to, to uh, wrap your minds, uh, hopefully, uh, around. Um, watch the disruption that um, in technology, that innovation will accelerate as a, as a result of this. I have hope that that will work and that those reforms that will have to come are necessary and, uh, and critical to our state's uh, success and the success 
um, uh, for our next generation. And uh, love you all. Because I'm working for I'm working for millennials and and, and Gen Zers now. That's where I'm working. <laughs> Thank you, Lucy. We'll toss it to Jennifer. Well, thanks so much. I, I also am so inspired by the work that uh, Joel and Marshall do, and uh, of course my fellow panelists. Uh, and I think Chapman is, by the way, kicking butt—a uh, technical <laughs> term. So Thank congratulations, Lisa. Um, I do think that uh, uh, what we're seeing now is uh, a little bit of a demographic um, uh, race uh, uh, because I think that, uh, again, my generation continues to have a stranglehold uh, on media and on um, so many levers of power. And we do have in California at least a dogma, a religion um, that, you know, cross and be erased. Uh, so um, that leaves just too many people out of any level of uh, economic security, let alone prosperity. And those people, I'm hoping, will not all leave California, um, but I'm very concerned that some of the best and brightest are. And uh, I'm hoping um, that uh, there are enough people committed to the success of the state that they'll stay, that they'll get involved, and that they will question their elders and poke through numbers like, why don't we count forest fires as greenhouse gas emissions in the state's inventory? What a shameful omission. It kills people. So why, Mary Nichols, is that the way you've cooked the books? Right. Very good, very good. Steve? So I'm not going to compliment Marshall and Joel, they get enough of that. Um, <laughs> but I am gonna compliment my fellow two panelists, although being on a panel with two lawyers is difficult in and of itself. But I, I would just leave people with this thought, and this is the mantra that I use, is the question I ask is, is this good for people? Jobs, housing, food, quality of life, opportunity, you know, is it good for people? And especially for the poorest among us. Bad on us in, the, in the, an incredibly wealthy state like ours to have the amount of poverty and homelessness and economic dislocation and disadvantage and overcrowding. And I can go on and on. It's like we, it's shame on us. And so I would hope we can use people as the primary focus in asking, is this good? Should we do it? How do we make it better? Thank you, Steve. I'll, I'll leave it to Joel and Marshall to wrap up. I'm hoping because in your report, you did touch on education a bit. If you could unpack that uh, a bit, we have some questions about related to uh, how do you feel about making school districts county controlled like Florida and eliminating local districts? Um, what are different approaches that we need to be considering in terms of uh, you know, reopening the K-12 schools and, and so forth? Well, you know, the key thing is, however we go at it, I, I'm not sure that there is a one-size-fits-all answer to your question. Um, I do believe that localities need to have a strong imprint on what it is that it's going to be taught in their area. But more importantly is, the notion that we have to have innovation happening in, in education. It has to be not only fostering innovation as an outcome, but it has to be innovative in its methods in and, of, in and of itself. And so we need to be experimenting with a lot of different ways of doing it rather than being dogmatic and saying, this is the one way education needs to be, needs to be uh, delivered. I was very heartened today, not only with your comments from everybody on the panel, thank you so much for bringing it alive, but as I looked at the participant list on, the, um, on Zoom here, 
I recognized a number of student names in there of students that have been students of mine, students of Joel's. This is your game. As Lucy says, it's about, it's about the, the millennials and the, and the Gen Z's. It's not about us. This is your world. You have to take the reins and go with it. We have gone out of our way to try to outline <clears throat> what we think the issues are and what some of the problems are, but you need to take the reins and drive this. Joel? Yeah, just to wrap up, first of all, I thank the panelists and Lisa and all the participants. And one very important thing to mention is a lot of this report was put together by students at Chapman University. Um, and um, I think they are very aware. It's a very interesting group. Some of them are fairly conservative. Some of them are very liberal, worked for very liberal Congress people. But they understand that the future that we're leaving, that next generation, is not the future that I think many of them want. They, they don't want to move um, from uh, classical Rome to feudalism. They want to, they want to be part of something that, that, is, um, that is more uh, upwardly mobile, has more possibilities. And so I, I agree with, with uh, particularly with what Lucy had to say. I'm, when I think about why am I doing this stuff, and then I look at my daughters and I say, I don't want them to grow up in a world in which a, maybe America doesn't have opportunity, where almost certainly California is not going to have opportunity. How many times when you talk to somebody, uh, even to very successful business people, say, well, what about your kids? Oh, my kids aren't going to be able to live in California. California was designed, built, made to be the future, as, as the late Kevin Starr um, put it. It is really um, the one that determines whether we have a future in America. And right now we're stomping on that future and our role here is to start a discussion. And we would love to be engaged with people in Sacramento and, um, and in the major newspapers to have this debate. It, again, it is not a partisan issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's an issue about the survival and thriving of our next generation and the future of California. That's why we're doing this. And, and by the way, this is not a one-time event. We have a podcast every two weeks called Feudal Future Podcast, hashtag Feudal Future. Um, you can subscribe to it on Apple, YouTube, um, uh, all of the typical channels that you would, you would um, uh, subscribe to podcasts on. And we, we address these issues. The next one coming up is, in fact, is Michael Schellenberger, who's going to talk about um, uh, uh, the Apocalypse, ne Apocalypse Never book which is all about environmental alarmism and why it's blowing things out of proportion. So we invite you to keep the conversation going and uh, stay tuned to, uh, to the discussion. I wanna just wrap up and say thank you to this amazing set of panelists. There's such a wealth of knowledge here on the screen here. And I know we're all very committed to sharing our ideas, to helping to create a better California, a better future for our children and our families. Um, and so I want to thank all of you for putting this together. I want to thank the Chapman team, Tom Piotta leading the team, Pam Azell, uh, Manaz uh, Asgari, and uh, the rest of the team. I think we had an amazing uh, showing today. And thank you for the audience for tuning in. And we hope to see you in the future.